Warning, this episode contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the season finale of season three of Whiskey Sex Talk. I am your host, Romeo. And I am your host, host Maria. And as our guest today, we have Dr. Davidson back in the studio. Thank you. It's good to be back with you both today. So, Dr. Davidson, today our topic is paraphilia. And uh, just in general, if you could introduce us to that topic and talk a little bit about what that means um, for those of us who don't know, and just, you know, to have us dive it, dive right into that. Right. Well, most people don't know what that term means. Paraphilia is a clinical term that we use as therapists, specifically sex therapists, to identify what um, might be more casually referred to as kinks or fetishes. So a paraphilia is any intense and persistent sexual interest other than interest in genital stimulation. And that's a definition that I'm giving to you that you would find. Um, it's the definition that the American Psychiatric Association uses in their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which includes sexual disorders. And it's um, how they define the term paraphilia. And having said that, it's really important that I explain to you that paraphilias are not in themselves a disorder. So the APA also distinguishes uh, paraphilia from uh paraphilic disorder. Mm. So just because someone has a kink or fetish, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a sexual disorder or mental disorder. Now, um, I, I, the one paraphilia that I can think of, and I think most people always gravitate to is BDSM. Um, when I think of that, um, is that, is that, is that a correct assumption? Like, well, BDSM is actually a combination of several different paraphilias. Oh. So, uh, you know, sadism is a separate paraphilia from masochism. And, you know, that, that's the S and the M. Uh, we might also use the S in BDSM to refer to submission, which is not necessarily about masochism. So, um uh, and bondage is yet even another paraphilia. So bondage, submission, uh, uh, dominance, uh, sadism, and masochism, those are five different paraphilias that we kind of lump together under one heading. What are some good things that you uh, that's it's good to know specifically about paraphilia? You gave us the background information and, and, and its, its history. What's something that we, how do we can understand, how can we understand this better as, as uh, adults that are trying to educate ourselves specifically with sexual wellness? Yeah. Well, I would say that the good things to know are that paraphilias are really pretty common. They are more common in men than they are in women. They have existed throughout the history of humanity in every culture um, they are mostly not illegal. There are a few that are illegal, but those are the ones that uh, don't involve consent. Uh, um, they are, you know, we, we consider them to be normal. Um, many people enjoy their paraphilias. They are part of their um, understanding of their eroticism, their sexual expression, their enjoyment of their sexuality. Um, so I, I would say those are the good things to know about them. Uh, we don't even call paraphilias a disorder unless they are one of those few paraphilias that are uh, illegal 
and uh, do not involve consent that could potentially be harmful to other parties involved, or unless they cause uh, significant clinical distress for the person who has that paraphilia. And certainly shame is one of those things that can cause distress. So uh, paraphilias are not easily eradicated. You know, if you have one, you, you have one, and it tends to be with you throughout your life. What I coach clients is that if it's not problematic, then let's embrace it. Let's integrate it into your life uh, in a way that doesn't continue to cause you shame or distress. Um, you know, uh, I'm thinking here, and it's very, very easy to, let's say I have a paraphilia. Let's just say, let's say, you know, I have that. It's very easy um, for a person to feel shame or to feel, not shame, but to feel really weird, I want to say, about that. Because I guess there's our history, at least this particular Western history, there's been this for a while, you know, certain paraphilias were treated as uh, mental illnesses, and um, it wasn't until I believe what 29, 29, 2009 or twenty nineteen where that where that change is that correct? Like the definition was ch- changed. Uh, well, actually, it's been kind of a, a progression of change. So the term paraphilia came about in nineteen twenty two. It was uh, a term that was created by a Viennese psychiatrist who felt like that it was not helpful to patients to diagnose them as being sexual deviants or perverts, which were terms that were unfortunately used um, in the field many years ago to understand anything, any kind of sexual expression that did not lead to insemination of the female involved. So pretty much mainstream, the mainstream right. kind of approach. Vaginal intercourse, anything that wasn't vaginal intercourse was a paraphilia. So this included things like masturbation. It included oral sex. It included a lot of things that cisgender heterosexual couples might engage in and enjoy today uh, and you know have integrated into their life and understand it as a normal expression of their sexual relationship. But there was a time when those things were not just considered abnormal, psychologically abnormal, but they were also illegal. Uh, The sodomy laws here in the States came about in the 1800s as a way to criminalize any kind of sexual activity between married couples that did not lead specifically to her insemination. So sex was considered specifically for breeding. It wasn't something that you were expected to do for pleasure or for intimacy or bonding and certainly not for recreation. That's so crazy. And, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Like, I'm thinking like if I lived during those times or when that was still uh, a mental, consider a mental illness, I'm thinking like you could have weaponized this. You could have used it against, let's say, you're, you're in the middle of divorce. They discover you have a paraphilia and boom, your children are taken. It's really one of those things where I feel, and I, I think I've read about it a little bit, that it was weaponized a lot. And a lot of people lost custodies of their children. And I don't want to go on a dark path here, but I just want to shed light in that about literally the, that bit of piece of history that you know, happened to a lot of people, not a lot of people, people who, let's say, were, were found that they had a paraphilia. Well, absolutely. It has been used in that way throughout history to uh, divorce your spouse, to take children away from your spouse, uh, to fire people from jobs. Uh, Yes, it has been used as a weapon throughout history. And that's why it's so important that uh, today people understand that they do have rights to sexual freedom. And, you know, people still want to use toss around the word abnormal or label people as sexual deviants. Right. Um, And that might be your personal opinion, 
but there's no clinical basis for it. So it's not going to hold up in court. And no one in, in the medical profession is is holding up to that anymore, right? There's no people like, well, I believe that, that's, that this is still that that's the case. Well, if you are, you're not practicing according to the best practice guidelines that are established by the American Psychiatric Association. And, uh, and what you're doing is not ethical because we don't get to just make up our own diagnoses. We have to have some kind of scientific criteria that we follow that keeps this universal. Thank you for that. And I, I do want to know, what are the risk fa- factors uh, for paraphilias? Um, well, I think it depends on what the paraphilia is. Um, again, you know, uh, if it is a paraphilia that is illegal, such as voyeuristic disorder, for example, um, and a voyeur is someone uh, in the clinical terms is someone that enjoys watching unsuspect- unsuspecting people undress or uh, go to the bathroom, be nude, engaging in sexual activity, they are watching without that person's consent. Right. So consent is always the issue, obviously. Consent is always the issue. Uh, And so, you know, there are some people who like to be watched uh, and they give consent to being watched. And so in that case, that's the um, type of paraphilia that we're talking about that is actually, okay, you can express that, right? right? If if somebody tells you, sure, I love this, go ahead and do this, then that's a different ball game. Uh, absolutely. And we don't consider that to be a disorder because consent has been given. Uh, it's not illegal. Um, and, you know, another one is exhibitionistic disorder. Um, so you know, showing yourself to someone who um, uh, is not expecting that you're going to expose yourself to them, uh, who has not given consent to that, who didn't ask for it, who doesn't want it, um, that is considered a disorder. But, you know, if you go to a public nude beach and everybody's nude on the nude beach, um, that's not exhibitionism because you're in a setting where you have consent, you have permission, and it's socially appropriate within that environment. And what about those cases, for example, where you have people give consent in the moment and then they kind of retract back, think about what they did and they, and they say, oh, well, never mind. I wasn't really um, I wasn't I actually wasn't really comfortable giving that consent and now I actually think I shouldn't have given that consent. And I gave that consent, but I take it back. How are those cases handled right now? I think that may be good information for people to know. Yep. Because we do get those cases where sometimes it seems like everybody's on the same page, right? Yeah, right. And then all of a sudden, after the fact, one of the people in the situation might retract back and say, oh, my goodness. And what are some of the implications for that? And how is that handled right now? Well, there are certainly legal implications for that, Um, you know, and I have taught classes on consent to adults. Um, But, you know, at at the moment someone retracts consent, then you need to pay attention to that because something might be okay for us one day, but it's not something that's okay the next day. Well, I mean, like in those cases that it happened already, but then, but it's like a post, you know, I was in this with you and back in that moment, I I liked it. But then today I woke up and I said, oh my God, what did I just do? I told that was not, you know, how I really just don't really think that that's really what I wanted. I think that's where it can get tricky because you do have cases like that, you know, where people think that this is what they want. They go through with it and it's a post effect. Right. And then how is it handled with, right, the person who was given consent and thought that, oh, okay, I thought I was in this situation consensually, and now it seems like I'm not? Well, I I think how it's handled depends on the context of Mm -hmm. it. So, um, you know, uh, uh, legally, I can't really speak to to that because I don't have a background in law. Right. But but I would think if you, it, it would be like any other contract. If you sign the contract, you in that moment, you are agreeing to it. 
if, you know, a year later you say, oh, you know, wait a minute, I really don't want this car anymore. I want to take it back and get my money back. I don't know that you have any legal recourse on that because some time has passed. And then that moment you agreed to it and, you know, verbal contracts hold up in law, just like written contracts do. So, um, and, and, you know, there are things that one day we like it, we enjoy it. Another time in our life, we don't. So um, I, I think people have to be aware that even within the context of your 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 marriage or your relationship, the rules can change. People can change their mind and they always have a right. We always have a right to say, I don't want that anymore. I wanted it then. Maybe I consented to it then, but I no longer give consent. And, you know, if, if I did that to a partner, then I have to hold myself accountable for the fact that one day mm-hmm. I said, yes, you know, I went along with it. I agreed to it. I can't really make you responsible for the choices I made in that moment. I can hold you responsible if you continue to push the limits when I'm now saying, no, I don't want it anymore. Okay. I was just asking that question just to kind of underline that, you know, Mm -hmm. there are situations where accountability is due and that if you do change your mind, it isn't always necessarily the other party's fault, you know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, you know, I I mean, I don't know that we get to blame people for something. No, no, I'm not coming in with it. I mean, you can change. I'm not trying to blame anybody. I'm just saying how is, because these situations do get tricky and it seems we have a lot of accounts of those in the media and in the news where it's, it gets blurry, you know, these stories get blurry. And I, I I thought it would be interesting or, you know, appropriate to raise that question to Uh, see how people could approach that and just think about it. And maybe perhaps, you know, but before they give their consent, maybe think about it twice or 10 times or 15 times and, well, and then say, OK, you know, this is my choice and I stand by it. And if I don't stand by it tomorrow, it was still my choice in the moment. So I'll make a different choice today. But I want to be accountable for the choice that or I should be accountable for the choice that I made yesterday. Yes. And a couple of great examples of what you're talking about that have come up are those experiences where people gave consent, but after the fact, they say, well, you know, I was under the influence of alcohol, or I didn't fully understand what I was consenting to. And so those are some variables that do matter. They they are, you know, consistent. So if you drug someone, you know, or uh, you don't, they, they don't fully understand what it is that you are inviting them to participate in, then they haven't really been able to give consent in a way that is fully informed and sober. Well, of course. Yeah. If you're under the influence of drugs. Well, you know, or drugged by somebody, that's a different situation. I was just referring to things how, you know, some people don't like the experience and then they kind of retract back on it, but but go ahead. I I feel like that's more like a guilt thing that you feel shame. You know, it's just something that, sexually you're like it's kind of like you know when you maybe I'm, I'm wrong here but I'm, I'm taking it like this like uh you know if I was in that position where I did it and then uh at, after it I'm thinking and I feel ashamed and I feel just like ick about it and I'm just like you know what I, I you know it's like it's da- I'm doubting myself when initially I was like okay with it that's how I feel that that would arise where I would feel like I didn't consent in that event which is um, interesting because, um, you know, if you're going to be, uh, if, you, if you have a paraphilia and I'm going to use a, a, just a BDSM, for example, um, why am I bringing that up? Because that's a perfect example why there's contracts um, for, you know, for play and everything. But what's interesting about that, though, is that even if these contracts are in place, from what I understand, it won't hold in the court of law. Um, because it's not a legal binding contract and um, it's very it's one of those things what you said Maria like you really really have to think about it if you're going to go in and especially what Dr. Steven Dr. Davidson was actually talking about uh, you know if people get induced or or drugged if you're going to go in it I'm just saying this if I'm going to give some positive advice like go in with like a sober mind don't have it a drink and be like oh I need to loosen up I'm going to 
you know, get into lower my inhibition. You can't because then you're going to blame that. And then you're going to feel like it was because of that that led you to that. Like do it of sound and mind so you can go in it and really be present, I want to say. And yeah, you'll get nervous. I'm not encouraging or giving advice here, but I'm just saying that sometimes there is that factor, right? Like, you know, let's say, for example, we all, we've done it in the past. You go on dates and then you're nervous and you, you have to have a drink because it's you know, your nerves, you know? But I think like if you're going to be practicing whatever paraphilia it is, whether it's voyeurism or uh, uh, yeah, exhibitionism or whatever, I mean, go <laughs> yeah. in it, go in it yeah. really like sober because, you know, like I, I don't want to de deviate here, but like, you know, like you can't go in like high or buzzed because you're going to fall. It, it, it could it could lead it's it could lead into a different direct a wrong direction. Um, and uh that's just me. That's just what I'm thinking. Like, you know, you got to really, really, you're, you're right, Maria. You got to think about it and you can't be like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm in, I, I'm, I'm in the mood for that, <laughs> you know? Uh, I don't... So, so let me jump in and say something here. Um, what we're talking about it really is about safety right. and, and consent. And it's very important. But most people who engage in kinks, fetishes, BDSM, um, they are doing it with people that they already know they have permission to do it with. It, it is part of an established relationship, or maybe they are part of a network or club or group of people who already know that they enjoy this kind of activity. And so they are far beyond trying to sort this kind of stuff out. Uh, a lot of uh, sex clubs do not allow alcohol or drugs on the premises. Nice. They don't sell. They don't sell alcohol in those clubs. Uh, they heavily screen their members because they don't want to run into these kind of legal situations that we're talking about. Yeah, it's they want. Go ahead. I apologize. Yeah, they they, they want to make sure that their members um, show up and are informed and are giving consent so that everybody can play in a way that. Um, it's just more relaxing and fun and not having to worry that uh, you're you're crossing legal boundaries. That's interesting you say that because uh, here in Israel, there's a famous, uh, I think it's a sex club or some fetish club or, you know, uh, that type of club. It's called uh, Taboo, and I'm going to say it. Um, and uh, there was there right now there was a, there was an investigation where um, certain individuals were there present and you know they met uh i believe from what i understand they met like the owner and then it was like hey come to the after party you know to a different location and what ended up happening was one of those situations where at first it seemed like consent and it, it just gets kind of the lines get blurry and it's like well wait a minute at what point you know since you now it's like uh it's one of those situations where it's really, I don't know how it's going to play out. I, I really don't know what happened. I think uh, a lot of people are pissed off because the, the owner of the club is still out there, but he's like saying like, Hey, listen, like it was consent, but like people are playing the victim and Hey, there might be truth to it. I don't know. But, uh, that's the type of stuff that people run into, you know? Um, and I, I wasn't aware that, I mean, makes sense that sex clubs are, have to be sober. And I believe a lot of them have a zero tolerance of no means no. You know, if someone says no, you can't reapproach that person again. Right. Um, right. Uh, so how, I know you mentioned this, but like really how are paraphilias diagnosed, like diagnosed, like how is it hard to diagnose someone? Like, how do I know if I have it? Like, does it need to be diagnosed? Like, well, uh, again, uh, just having a paraphilia is not necessarily a disorder. Okay. So we wouldn't even we wouldn't use the term diagnose with paraphilias. It would just be an expression that this is something I enjoy sexually. Um, uh, so, and and a lot of <coughs> excuse me, a lot of paraphilias really kind of get normalized in, in culture. They're not really, you know, like I, I said earlier, masturbation used to be considered a paraphilia. We don't consider yeah, that. There were cereals for that. <laughs> there was cereals for that. <laughs> that's, that's right. Kellogg's. There were cereals for that. <laughs> Kellogg's. Um, I was like to combat that. Yeah. 
Um, you know, oral sex used to be considered a, uh, a paraphilia, but people engage in oral sex on a regular basis in their relationships and they don't really think about it. They don't give it a second thought. Um, uh, you know, foot fetishes, uh, which could also um, mean a barefoot or it could mean a, a, a shoe fetish or a boot fetish. It could even be a fetish around socks. It could be a fetish around underwear. Well, you know, most people wear underwear. And so, um, you know, maybe you have a really specific kind of underwear that you have a fetish around. But uh, it, it is so normalized that right. you don't even give it a second thought. So uh, a lot of fetishes just really get integrated in our life anyway. Um, you know, the stores, Fredericks of Hollywood, Victoria's Secret, right, right. they built their whole model, their whole business model around men's kinks and fetishes regarding women and women's bodies. So these are just examples of how it, it does exist in our life every day in ways that we don't even think about. We think about it when it's not a kink or fetish that we personally have, then we think, oh, well, that's really strange and abnormal. Or we think about it when it's in this category of illegal or potentially dangerous. Then we think about it. What are like the like what what are some things that and I, and I and I'm sorry if I'm asking you to repeat yourself. And thank you so much for reiterating that. Uh, what are harmful? Uh, how harmful are paraphilias like? Is there such a thing? I know you mentioned right now that these things have been normalized, but there is, you know, we've we mentioned a couple of them, like, you know, BDSM, for example, like the risk that you can run into. Voyeurism. Voyeurism. Thank you. <laughs> it's not going to roll out because I don't practice that. But Voyeurism. <laughs> um, thank you, voyeurism. Um, and um, it's 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 one of those things where, uh, you know, I could, I could see people getting in trouble. I mean, listen, look back. Uh, and I don't want to bring this up, but like, for example, um, what's his name? George Michaels. Remember the like, the big thing that happened mm -hmm. with him mm -hmm. in the bathroom? That's one incident that, that can get you in trouble. But I don't know. I think that was a setup. But um, or better yet, like, let's say, um, um, I don't know. We hear these cases, you know, and, and I'm just talking about this because it's just so relevant. And and it's very easy to stigmatize someone or be like, oh, there's something wrong with that person. It's just like. I don't want to say some people don't have control, but it's it's good to be aware of, I guess your your feta your your paraphilia. Your, you know what I'm trying to say here? Like it's um right. So those things that are illegal are are illegal because they are potentially harmful. Um, so if if you wake up in the middle of the night and you see someone standing over your bed watching you or you, you look out your window while you're engaged in sex with your partner and you see someone standing there looking in, that creates a lot of fear. It could potentially create trauma for those people involved. And that's an ex example of how it is dangerous. That's a psychological danger. That person isn't touching you directly. And so you might not be in physical danger, but you don't know that in that moment. So, right, or if, if or if a person and people do do this, right? They use like they use binoculars to look into people's windows to try and to try and remain less conspicuous, right? Because they're not as close to your house, so there's that right. distance. But you know they can still fully see. So right, or, or they, you know, they there are cases where people have set up cameras, right, in, in bathrooms or dressing rooms, fitting rooms, and department stores. Um, people have shown up at someone's home and they are there as a plumber, an electrician, a painter. You know, they're there to provide some service where they come into someone's home on a regular basis. And we open the door and let them in because we did call the plumber. We did call the electrician. And it but turns they're out there, they're actually the watcher. Well, not, yeah, yeah, not the yeah. witcher, but the watcher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and so I'm I am aware of cases like that, too, where um, and sometimes people who are exhibitionist or uh, who have an exhibitionistic disorder or a voyeuristic disorder will enter into jobs where they have access to people in order to indulge um, this paraphilic disorder and in this case it is a disorder because it is clinically harmful 
Which is in um, and I'm glad you, you're mentioning that because we it goes back to what you said earlier. Consent, right? Consent is the word here. Like, it's permissible if it's consensual between two right. parties. Meaning, like, whatever it is that is being practiced here. Uh, let's say if it's not cons- if it's considered, you know, a paraphilia. Uh, I want to ask, uh, oh, actually, you know, I want to comment on something. Uh, there was this, I don't know if you guys seen the news, but like, do you guys remember the lady that had a, she married a tree? I think she's from the UK. Uh, she married a tree and recently she popped up again and she's now in love with a fence and, uh, just wanted to <laughs> bring that up. Oh, because, I, yeah. Because this is, this is a paraphilia, right? She has an affection for inanimate objects, correct? Uh, <laughs> well, I am not aware of that story. Uh, I'm not aware of that case. Um, you know, d- what I would want to know is, does she gain uh, erotic arousal from being with the tree or the fence? Um, so, you know, there are lots of tree lovers and tree huggers out there, but they don't get erotic arousal from it. And so that's what uh, I would want to understand. Uh, is there some fetish around, um, you know, the tree, the fence? Um, Whatever. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have the answer. I just wanted to, I just to, wanted to comment on that because it, it literally popped up on my feed, like, I think last week. And I was thinking of this episode and just kind of mentioning it. I do, ha- do want to know this. There are, you know, I'm all about sexual wellness and, hey, more power to you, finding avenues to you know, improve yourself, find what, what really works for you, really working on, on your sexual well-being. Um, these, there's a lot of out there, like, for example, there's a lot of, like, um, uh, coaching that is tied to paraphilias. Like, for example, you have out there people that use BDSM to help people f- uh, find a deeper connection with, their, with themselves and sex and how to break through that, le- that, that barrier that they actually have. Now, or even we just interviewed a guest who uses BDSM in an end of life coaching, uh, partially. So I just wanted to add that for you, you know, in depth. Are these like? Go ahead, Maria. No, no, I just wanted, I just wanted to add to Romeo's, uh, you know, to your uh, comment that they go as far as you know. Some of these coaches say that this can help people not only with their sexual. Uh, you know, life not, or, or their sexual selves, as we want to call it, but that uh, it, it these these approaches, like such as BDSM, can help in terms of even when you are at the end of your you know lifespan to try and get you gain peace with who you are and go on to you know your out of body experience. Right. Like, let's call it that <laughs> with a more peaceful. With a more peaceful, you know, kind of mind. What what do you, what that's what I would ask is yeah, what do you think about that? Well, you know, within um BDSM, for example, we're talking about themes of power, surrender, control. Mm-hmm. Th- these are themes that come up in other aspects of our life right. and certainly around death and dying. You know, uh, our, our our struggle with surrender, <clears throat> our struggle around power and control. And, and so our paraphilias, our kinks, our fetishes carry a wealth of information about who we are psychologically. That's why I instruct my clients to embrace them. Let, let's look at it. Let's integrate it. Let's understand it. It, it uh, carries information sometimes about even unmet needs in life or unmet issues from uh, unmet needs from childhood or issues in the past that didn't get resolved. A lot of our scenes that people set up, they're BDSM scenes, and they often refer to them as scenes. Uh, it's kind of like uh, the um, intervention that we use in psychotherapy called psychodrama where we create the scene for the person to act out this situation in their life that has been a source of conflict for them. And many of the people that I've worked with who have kinks and fetishes tell me that they understand that when they indulge certain kinds of 
kinks, fetishes, paraphilias, that they are working on themselves psychologically or spiritually on a deeper level. And so they are internally aware that there is purpose in this. There's meaning to it. And it helps them to um, overcome barriers in the past and to lean into psychological goals that they might have for themselves. That's so fascinating. I mean, it, there is, I, it makes kind of sense, but you know, you kind of always have to kind of question these, these type of things because you never, you know, you're coming in into a space of uh, an alternative way of working on your sexual wellness. And you, there is a level of vulnerability that you bring yourself to and, and, you know, um, you trust that this process might hopefully uh, will change you for the better, but it's good to know that it does, it can help people because um, sometimes, you know, the typical, I want to say some people don't think that like going to therapy is going to work for them when they feel like maybe they have to kind of, what did you say? Dramatic drama, dramatization, psychodrama, psychodrama, psychodrama. is yeah. actually here. The, the key word that actually really does uh, help. And it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's no different than acting too, because in acting, uh, <laughs> I want to just say that in acting, <laughs> you, you go through, you know, when you're, when you're, you're in acting school, as in, for example, on Meisner Train, you go through like these type of things where you have to act like things that have impacted you that you still remember that can bring, bring you to tears, anger, just to kind of find that release and be more free, what they say, be very, very free and intuitive as an actor. But uh, bringing it back to this, um, what's something that... Um, you, uh, what's something <coughs> that you can tell our, our audience that to keep in mind when, when, when really... Uh, uh, understanding paraphilia, especially like our, our young uh, listeners, because I feel like this is such a, I mean, there's so much information out there on this that like it can get confusing, really. Um, right. Well, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, most paraphilias are not, they, they are harmless. They are harmless and they are legal. So uh, if you are leaning into something or you have an interest in something that is potentially harmful, then I think you need to understand it. And you can understand it by reading about it. Um, after you enter adulthood, you can understand it by finding a safe person, uh, a mentor. Um, you know, if, if it's within BDSM, uh, they might identify as being a sir or master or mistress or madam who will uh, coach you on this and and set up the scene in a way that is safe where it's also educational and where you can just experience different aspects of it without subjecting yourself um you know jumping in um uh, too quickly in a way that might potentially be harmful for you or might push your limits thank you for that but what about some Sorry, Romy, I just one last question. What about some of the more extreme behaviors that, for example, in um, some of the BDSM communities would be considered maybe healing and then in, you know, psychiatry or psychology could be considered borderline, like severe beating mm -hmm. or cutting or these behaviors that some people come in, they're craving that they say, OK, I really want this. And maybe if you came into, you know, a psychiatrist's office, that would be questionable. But in a community that is, you know, outside of the realm of psychiatry, that if that person is asking for it and they say, I consent to this, I want this, give it to me, it's going to help me. Yeah. Uh, d does that have a basis to exist without that being reproached or looked upon, looked down upon, or even, I don't know, I guess, punished by law because... Those cases do, you know, I guess that that's the premise for where things can get really, you know, I guess, interesting in terms of I mean, what I'm saying is, is the if the person is really asking for it, um, is, is the right thing to intervene and say, OK, no, this is borderline. You really shouldn't do this and stop them. But if they're saying this is going to heal me, OK, they're going to they're still going to find that outlet. And some of those outlets are, you know, the BDSM communities where there is a healing ritual afterwards, aftercare. And these people say, hey, this this really um, this really helps me in a way I, I don't hold 
anybody but myself accountable or responsible. And this is the path that I took. Can I, can I just, and I'm sorry, Dr. Davis. I just want to say, I think like a lot of, from what I've read out there and from what I understand is like most of like stuff that's borderline like that, they won't even tolerate it in, in, in spaces like that because it's just a, a red flag and it could lead into other ish, legal ish, issues. I just wanted to say that. Right. Dr. Yeah. Davis, that's, that's essentially my question. Is it, is that a red flag or, or how, how is that really, what's the right way to approach that? Yeah, I think it's potentially a red flag because if if I am uh, a master within that BDSM context and uh, someone comes to me and they want to be submissive in a scene and they want me to hit them and beat them up, uh, I, I have to understand that I am uh, could inflict serious harm on someone in the way that I do that. And uh, if I leave bruises or if I break bones, now there's evidence and I could potentially be held, um, you know, uh, accountable for committing a crime. So, you know, you have to know what state you live in because some things are legal in some places and they're not legal in others. But if that same person showed up at the local boxing club and they challenged me to a boxing match and they got a bruise or they broke a rib, you know, how's this different? Right. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's really interesting how the context of it can, change, right. can really change right. everything. And, and so, you know, in that way we would say, Oh, well, this is normal. This is just, you know, two people who are boxing. Uh, and this is what boxing is about. Um, but if it's sexual play, we're more likely to pathologize it, demonize it, have a problem with it. And what is it about sexual play that makes it that it is demonized as opposed to just a boxing match? Um, well, I, I think we have a history of pathologizing, mm-hmm. demonizing, criminalizing sexuality yeah. uh, throughout world history. <laughs> I mean, so, right. especially here yeah. in the States. I mean, I mean, especially in the United States. But yeah. uh, we've, we've known that. I mean, you don't have to go far back to the 1950s when a, a lot of that stuff, people were in institutions, you know. A lot of people right. are gay, lesbians. And, yeah. And, and so most people who identify as masochist, they want to experience pain. They they do not want to experience it in those extreme ways. Most right. masochists don't want to be, they don't want the hell beaten out of them. You know, they don't they don't want a limb cut off. <laughs> this is yeah. not what this That's is not like, what they're asking. Yeah, for. It, it makes sense. Yeah, I yeah, mean, like, they, I know. they they want to be I, spanked. They want you to pull their hair a little right. bit. You know, I want a little light choking, uh, but, you know, not to the point that I can't breathe. Those are the things that most people want that are really simulated acts. They are not actual. Um, they're not actually causing physical harm to that person. And, right. And I just want to say something. And, and I, I feel like I so much is devoted to BDSM, but that's only because it's 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 out there. It's the most common one. But. Uh, you know, at the end of the day too, like, like, you know, you mentioned Maria, where's the border? Like, you know, some of this stuff can be borderline. Look, sex is sex. And Dr. Davidson said this, like, you know, at the end of the day, people want to feel good. No one wants to feel pain, pain, like pain, like, Hey, oh my God, my arm broke, you know, you broke my arm. That's what, you know, no, that's something else. Clearly we know that. Uh, No, of course. Of course. I was just opening it up to, you know, for discussion of having. The conversation of you know from one spectrum to the other, and where right. do we where do we just draw the line you know yeah. be- so, between so, all of this? So so part of the appeal for the extreme kinds of behavior like BDSM, for example, is the release of endorphins people get from impact play, mm-hmm. like being flogged, um, and people say that they get a high from it. Um, they, they, uh, can relax afterwards. They, they find it very meditative sometimes to experience this kind of impact play. It is the same thing we describe after, um, going for a run, Mm, going for a workout. It's a release of endorphins in the brain. It might be described as a runner's high or the kind of high you get from uh, an intense workout. And so, um, it, it's the same kind of brain activity that's happening. 
Um, but, you know, maybe there is also an erotic aspect to it within the sexual arena. That's, uh, thank you. When does this like get diagnosed? Like, uh, let's say paraphilic, I think, uh, uh, occurs. When does this get like diagnosed really? At what age do people get? I don't know if that's the correct thing I'm asking here. Yeah. Paraphilias generally have their onset in childhood or adolescence. We don't always, you know, in childhood and adolescence, we might not always understand it. Uh, it doesn't make sense to us. Some of my clients describe being in childhood or adolescence and being in the presence of um, the, the object of, of fetish interest and recognizing that they feel a sense of euphoria or excitement. Uh, it's not until you know later adolescence or early adulthood that they really associate that with sexual arousal. That would be so confusing for teen. I mean, for someone that's coming into their their own skin, you know, uh, not knowing. <laughs> yeah, but you know, again, I said what I've said several times, and I'll say it again: is <laughs> a lot of this is normal, right? No, we know um, that. It, it, yeah, You're right. Uh, and so you know, it's it's why it's why women wear certain clothes. Uh, it's why they wear the really high heels. It's why they wear the fishnet stockings. These are things that are erotically exciting. And she feels sexy when she wears it. And he thinks she's sexy when she's wearing it. So uh, yeah. this is a way of just, you know, leaning into it and enjoying it. And it's really pretty benign. You know, nobody's hurting right. as a result of this. Yeah, it's just kind of like wearing a costume and experiencing yeah. being a different well, character on stage or something like that. Right. Right. Well, there's, absolutely. There's no different. It's no different than like, you know, people who are into men in uniform or people in uniforms, you know, like that's, that's, that, that's a thing. Um, right. You mentioned earlier um, that men are more, I want to say prone than women. Why is that? Why is it that it's more common with men than it is with women? Well, everything that we see in sexuality uh, is a little escalated, a little riskier, a little edgier, a little more primal in men than it is in women. Um, uh, and it's just the way male brains, cisgender male brains and cisgender female brains are designed differently around sexuality. So women are frequently the gatekeepers of sex mm -hmm. in, in heterosexual cisgender relationships. Um, women are more choosy about who they will have sex with than men. Women are more acutely aware of dangers and risk and safety than men are. And some of that is socialized, and some of that is just a product of survival, um, evolution, and survival. Right. Yeah. Well, and probably our physicality, right? Because we're smaller, right. more right. petite a lot of the time, and so you know we kind of look out, make sure we're going to be taken care of. The big uh, guy isn't going to, you know, break our face in while he's, you know. I mean, I'm I'm putting it very kind of, you know in a very aggressive way, but women, you know, have learned, I think, to take care of themselves in that respect. Right. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, you're, you're correct about that. Um, so also under the influence of testosterone, men, women have testosterone too, but testosterone levels in men are uh, significantly higher than they are in women. It's why we call it the male hormone, even though it's the hormone that women often have. But testosterone does a few things. It fuels the sex drive. It fuels aggression. And it also um, it decreases, diminishes impulse control. Mm. Women have far more impulse control in every activity in life than men do. Of course they do, yeah. This is so, it's such an interesting topic and thank you so much really for, for coming on the show and really breaking it down because I feel like we're aware of what the, what paraphilia is, but we don't know what the word is. You know what I'm saying? We, everybody's familiar with like all of the different versions that are out there. Um, and it's, uh, I'm glad that you came on the show and you told us a little bit about it and, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any more questions. Maria, do you have any more questions? 
Um, I guess maybe just one last one in terms of just to what you just said. So even even up to this day, even in modern day science, the research with, you know, gender roles kind of starting to be a bit more blurred, you would still say that the science shows that the women have more impulse control are still more selective. That still kind of stands in our day and age. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, that's not something that uh, I think women need to be ashamed of or or worried about or that men need to be ashamed of. Or worried no, about. I think it's a great thing, actually. But it's it's, um, you know, I think it's maybe something we're not really aware of with the social environments changing, Especially now, yeah. you know, around us, but or, you know, with a lot of things changing. But, you know, if that if that really is the case, I think it's it, it speaks right. to women and their strength in, in some ways. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there are other things that we know are that are very different for women than are for men. Women have a better command of language than men do. Women, on average, speak 700 more words a day than than men speak. Women have a greater attention to detail. They make wonderful private investigators because they catch all kinds of little nuances that men miss. The and femme is, fatale. <laughs> these are just differences in brains. Right. Uh, male brains and female brains are different in these ways. And, you know, there's some ways that men excel in certain areas, but there are also these ways that women excel as well. And so, uh, we are different creatures, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that, but we both should have a right to equality in our life and, and respect. All right, we can com- we can complement each other in those ways, right? Yeah. <laughs> well said, Dr. Davidson and Maria. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap for season three. Wow. It's been an interesting season. Uh, wow. Uh, We'll be back for season four, and hopefully Dr. Davidson will pop in here and there uh, to talk about other interesting topics. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, I am your host, Romeo. And I am your co-host, Maria. Thanks for listening. Till next time.